0: Hey, Reach Paramount, welcome to our podcast. We really hope this message encourages and challenges you as you walk with the Lord every day. Enjoy this message. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. I'll tell you, I feel the tangible presence of the Holy Spirit this morning. Um, as, As the worship team was singing, I was... Uh, I was obviously worship, and I just began to weep in the presence of God. And I just, uh, I just think that it's so powerful uh, that we put a high value on uh, our connection with the Holy Spirit, our connection uh, with God, and walking in His presence. And uh, in, a, in an atmosphere like this, uh, it's it's hard it's hard not to do that. Um, but I feel the presence of God here, and I'm excited uh, to be ministering this morning. I want to get into this message here and. The title of my message, if you're taking notes, is that God can use anyone and anything. I think think we should all be encouraged in that thought, that God can use anyone and anything to fulfill his purpose. And so we're in our sermon series of Finish the Fight. And uh, our our core scripture here is 1 Timothy 6, uh, chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. It says, but you, O man of God, or woman of God, escape these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Why don't you turn to someone and tell them, say, fight the good fight of faith. Turn to your second choice and let them know, hey, say, sorry, but fight the good fight of faith. The scripture goes on to say, "Lay hold on, uh, lay hold on eternal life to which you are called and have have professed a good profession." before many witnesses. And so we understand the context of this. Uh, Paul is charging Timothy. This is a son in the faith. Uh, Paul is in a dungeon right now. He's in the deepest, darkest, most secluded part of of a dungeon. And he's uh, in this moment compelled uh, to, to minister and to encourage one that he loves so much. Now, he's encouraging Timothy and giving him specific instruction to be a man of God. To be a man of God. Now what does that mean exactly? It's to pursue righteousness and godliness and faith and love and patience. And gentleness to fight this good fight of faith is to do all of those things and so fighting I believe is inherent to all of us I think at a certain level whether you're aggressive or passive-aggressive uh, you know fighting is just a part of who we are it's inherent to who we are and uh, obviously uh, when when there's a threat that's posed to our loved ones or our family or our home naturally we have this kind of instinctive response to want to fight uh, and to protect ourselves and to protect others. and uh, um, throughout our lives we we hear of injustice, and we want to like kind of raise up against those social injustices or those things. Uh, I remember my wife, uh, we were talking about her growing up, and she uh, she she was always uh, she was always bothered by bullies, and so she would stand up uh, for people in high school when they were being bullied. And so it's just this kind of this natural instinct that we have to want to protect and want to fight in this world today, there's a lot of causes that we could fight for. We could fight for, for we could fight for uh social injustice, we could fight for we could fight world hunger. We could fight all of these different political views and all these different great there are great causes that we could fight for and the list is really endless. It could just go on and on, but there's no greater cause than for fighting for this good fight of faith that I'm talking about this morning. There's no greater cause than to fight for the cause of Christ over your life, over your family's life, over generations to come. And really that's this call here is that we're calling you to engage and to get into this fight. The fight of good faith, it it consists of pursuing God's will and cultivating these virtues of godliness in our lives. It's about deciding to fight the temptation that each and every one of us face every single day. And all these other things that draw us away from God's purpose and God's plan. I believe that God has a purpose and a plan for every single person sitting in this room this morning. And so we have to fight against this tension in our lives. we got to fight against this temptation. See, many believers have this misconception... That uh, walking this life of faith is going to be problem free. It's like I-, I said my prayer, my 10 words of prayer, and I've given my life to the Lord, and now everything should be good. Everything should just kind of fall into place. I- I'm here to dispel that myth and that lie. And quite honestly, the moment that you give your life to Christ, I believe that is the moment that you really engage in the spiritual fight of the faith. See, Unfortunately, today's Christianity emphasizes blessings and prosperity. And I'm, I'm here to tell you, we say this often. I'll probably say it several times today, this morning, that God desires to bless you. God desires to prosper you. That is the Bible. That is the Word of God. But, th- but w- what happens is that we leave out this truth that we are in a battle, that there is conflict in our lives, and that there is this daily fight that we have to step up to and step into. Now, it's not that God wants us to struggle. It's not that God wants us to, 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 to be, you know, uh, to be jacked up all the time. But it's the, it's the result. It's really the result of our flesh. Now, what is our flesh? It's, it's the person inside of you. It's the person, uh, that's speaking to you right now that's distracting you. It's that temptation to open up your phone and start, you know, uh, flicking through TikTok right now as the word of God is being spoken. It's, it's that, it's that distraction or that pool that's got your mind in somewhere, somewhere else when you're sitting here, uh, supposed to be hearing the word of God. It's these philosophies and these ideas of our culture that's warring against our mind that are saying that, that, that there's several different ways of, of being good. There's several different paths to being godly. And most, most importantly, we have to understand that there's an enemy out there. And so we understand that God has not left us alone, but we know that God has given us the Holy Spirit to fill us and to empower us to fight this good fight of faith, Ephesians 6, chapter, uh, chapter 6, verses 10 through 12, we know this scripture. It says, Finally, my brothers, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For our fight is not against flesh and blood. It's not against your coworkers. It's not against your spouse. It's not against uh, 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 the person that cuts you off. It's not against all of those things. But against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look, believer, Christian, the enemy is coming after you in every angle. And so it may be manifested in, in the reality, but, but, uh, or in this present world, but the reality is that there's spiritual forces, there's spiritual strategies that have been, uh, uh, uh curated specifically for you and your experience to take you off of the course and take you out of this fight. And so the thought of this fight is not to be not to intimidate us, not to uh not not to uh scare us, we should not live our lives in fear, but really to inspire us to live our lives for Christ. To let our light shine in front of people, to let our light shine in a dark place. See, we're fighting for more souls to be saved. We're we're standing up for righteousness despite the trend of this culture, and we're reaching our communities and cities in the world because it's worth fighting for. The cause of Christ is worth fighting for. And so there's a few things that I want you to understand as we get into this, is is this. This is the reality. This is the truth. That whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, the reality is you are in a fight. So things might be going good right now, but the reality is that there are spiritual forces that are coming against you that are strategizing right now in this moment to come against you. C.S. Lewis said it like this enemy occupied territory that is what this world is and so as you go into your job as you go into the market wherever you go understand that you are you are in enemy occupied territory the enemy is there looking to tempt you the enemy is there looking to set you off course and this is our reality now with that reality we have reason to feel confident and to be hopeful 2nd Chronicles chapter 20 verse 17 Uh, The Bible says this, but you will not even need to fight. Take your positions, then stand still and watch the Lord's victory. He is with you. I'll say that one more time. He is with you, O people of Judah and Jerusalem. Now listen to this charge. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Go out. I want you to say that with me. Say, "Go go out. Say it like you mean it. Go out. Go out against them tomorrow, for the Lord is with you. Now context to the story is Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat is, is undermanned and, and there's this, this enemy this, there's this enemy that is is coming against him, and it 's in a moment of praise that Jehoshaphat is repentant before God and, and, and is worshiping before God, and then the people of God begin to rally around him it 's in that moment that there's a prophet there's a man of God that stands up and says that, that God is going to give you Jehoshaphat. The victory. All you have to do is go. And so Jehoshaphat uh, uh, says, uh, understands that, and we know that Jehoshaphat goes and he wins this great battle because he was obedient to God because he knew that God was with them. This is re- this is reason and cause for us to be hopeful and confident. And with all of these truths, I implore you to engage. Just like Jehoshaphat told the people of Israel, the people of Judah, to go out. It means that, that yes, God is with us, but we have to do something with it. We have to activate. We have to engage. And that's my call to you this morning, is that we would engage to finish this good fight of faith. I, I I heard uh, I, I heard a pastor say a, a few things. Now now this is a fact. I've been in church uh, basically my basically my entire life, and I'll tell you this: that those that start in ministry, very few of them finish in ministry. It's a sad thing. It's it, 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 it's it's horrible to see and horrible to experience and to witness. But that's a fact. Dallas Theological Seminar, Seminary professor did a deep dive on the scriptures for one thing, to see how people finished in the Bible. He discovered after a thousand hours of research that 75% of the people in the Bible who had a call on their life didn't finish well. They either didn't finish well, or they had their effectiveness forfeited because of something. This preacher went on to say, in the last few years, and I think we've experienced this 23 million Americans have walked away from Jesus. Think about that number. 23 million Americans over the last few years have walked away from Jesus. If you do the math there and the population, that's 1 in 15 Americans have walked away from the faith. I'll I'll, I'll take this a little bit further. Each and every one of us, I'm confident, have experienced that. You know someone that was walking with the Lord and they walked away. And so, even more so, we have to be engaged, we have to be aware. I've, I've said this to you before, but the greatest danger the Christian faces today isn't death, but apostasy. Now, what is apostasy? Apostasy is walking away from the faith. The greatest danger, it's not death. We, we understand as Christians, as believers, that uh, to, be, uh, uh, to be absent in body is to be present with the Lord. And we glorify in that. We, 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 we're thankful for that. But the greatest danger here today that we face is not death, but apostasy. And so as we look at the book of Judges, and this is going to be a, a survey that I'm going to walk us through. We're going to look at five different characters of the Bible. And really the book of Judges covers over 300 years of Israel's history. Uh, I'm going to cover about 100 years of history, and because of that, I have to move kind of fast here. But I want us to understand this, and I want us to kind of put context to these different things to understand that God truly can use anyone, and God truly does use anything to fulfill his purpose. Now, God was faithful to his promise to give the descendants of Abraham a land overflowing with his blessing provision and since the time when Adam lived in the garden uh, uh, and since the time when Adam lived in the garden God gave image bearers you and I a significant role in leading his people the patriarchs are great examples of individuals that God used and these these leaders the patriarchs all the heroes of faith were all broken people they were all marred by sin you'll read through it and understand their failures and their shortcomings In spite of that, they were all instrumental in fulfilling God's purpose and work on the world. That should give us some confidence. In the book of Judges, it opens with the death of a great leader in Joshua. See, Joshua mobilized the people of God to conquer the land of Canaan following Moses' death. And he encouraged the people to be obedient and filled them with confidence. And he led them to take the land God had provided. Now listen to this. This land, however was still occupied with God's enemies. God commanded his people to rid that land of any, of any nation who was opposed to God. And at the time of Joshua's death, there was a lot of work that still remained undone. And the mission needed to be completed. And so now here it is that God has ordained leaders in the tribe of Judah, and, and they're needing to take up this mantle of leadership empowered by God's Spirit. So the, the strategy was not military, the, the, the strategy was not uh, carnal or, or of this world, but it was being empowered by the, the, the presence of God that they would go forward and that they would win this victory. Now, they had nothing to fear because it was God that was leading them. It was God alone who would win the victory and give the opponents over to final death. And all, the, all the nation of Israel had to do was to trust and obey. Now, how simple is that? I think at times that in this walk of faith, as we're fighting this good fight of faith, that it's so oversimplified that we almost put things in it to complicate it because it can't just be this simple. It can't just be this simple that I have to trust God and live this life of faith or fight this good fight of faith. It can't be this simple that I just need to obey the word of God. There's got to be more to this. And so we begin to complicate this thing with human wisdom and with human ideology. God's faithfulness to his mission continues today. Leaders come and go, but God remains sovereign to the work. See, this work will continue based on the power and the presence of God, not the ingenuity or the strength of human leaders. Jesus demonstrated this reality following his resurrection. He told his followers, listen to this, to wait on the power of the Holy Spirit before they moved out in the mission with him. And so we understand in Acts 1 4, Jesus tells the disciples, hey, before you go and do what I've told you to do, go here and wait for the filling of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the task wouldn't be occupying territory by military might, but fulfilling the entire earth with the knowledge and the glory of God. This is the mission, and this is what will happen, not by might, not by power but by my spirit, says the Lord. Now I want us to look at Judges, and I'm going to read quickly, and we're going we're to move through it, and, and it's gonna, we're going to kind of go in order, uh, and then we're going to move back and forth. So if you, got your, if you have your Bible today, we're going to use that thing, okay? Uh, so open that, open your Bible up, and open it to Judges chapter 3, uh, verses 1, and let's, let's read together, okay? The Bible says, I'm going to ask you for grace, okay? There's a lot of... There's a lot of words and names in here that I'm going I'm to mess up. Okay, so give me grace. You guys good? Okay, all right. So let's start. These are the nations that the Lord left in the land to test those Israelites who had not experienced the wars of Canaan. He did this to teach warfare to generations of Israelites who had no experience in battle. That's interesting. These are the nations, the Philistines... Uh, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites living in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Bel-Hermon to Lebo-Hamath. And these people were left to test the Israelites to see whether they would obey the commands the Lord had given to their ancestors through Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, uh, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and all the other ites, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters, and Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. Now, if you read in Joshua, if you read in Exodus, and you hear the words of Moses and Joshua, and as they implore the people of Israel to be consecrated. What does that mean? To be set apart, to not intertwine with with anyone, with other nations, with other gods, with other worship practices, to remain holy and set apart. You see that there's this, this big falling away where the people of God are now intertwined or entangled. Pastor Luke used a great word. They're entangled with the pagans, with those that are contrary to God. And it says that they began to Israelite sons married the Canaanite daughters and likewise and so, so here's this here's this meshing of conflicting beliefs and total disobedience. So this is my first point that we're all fallen and broken people unable to do anything without the empowering presence of God. Apart from God, we could do nothing. Apart from God, your, your efforts will be ineffective. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, you can't achieve anything with eternal reward. We'll continue to read Judges 3, 7 through 11. And this is Othniel. And the Bible says that the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight, they forgot about the Lord, their God, and they served the images of Baal and the Asherah Poles. Then the Lord burned with anger against Israel, and he turned, to, he turned them over to King Kushan Rishathaim of Aram Naharim. I think I'm doing all right. And the Israelites served Kushan Rishathaim for eight years. Listen to this. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a rescuer to save them. His name was Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenes. And the spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he became Israel's judge. He went to war against King Cusham Rishathaim of Aram, and the Lord gave Othniel victory over him. So there was peace in the land for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenes, died. Now, throughout the Judges, we read that God delivered the Israelites when they called out to him for salvation from their desperate situations. This is very important. The Lord didn't wait until they cleaned up their lives. The Lord didn't wait until they repented. It was that they called out to the Lord. When they called out to the Lord, it wasn't that, that they were repentant. It was that they realized that they were ineffective. It, they realized that they were completely powerless against this enemy, and the only one that would be able to deliver them was God. They weren't relying on their military abilities anymore. They realized that they were rendered ineffective. And God provided deliverance as an act of grace and mercy in response to their helpless cry. In response, one man said it this way, their bankruptcy of resources. They came to a point, how many of us have come to a point in our lives where you realize, I've done everything. I've tried everything. I've tried, I, 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 I've tried uh, praying. I've tried fasting. I've tried all of these different methods and tactics that we know. I've tried counseling. I've tried AA. I've tried NA. I've tried all of these things, all of these resources. And I've come to this conclusion that none of this is going to work unless the power of God is in my life. This is very important. The gift of the Spirit didn't in itself guarantee success. I want to clarify what I'm saying here. Just because Othniel was empowered by the presence of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God, that in itself did not not guarantee success. There had to be cooperation with the Spirit. For that to happen and there was increasingly less of this both cooperation and success as we go through the judges but a very important point here is that the spirit of the the Lord came upon Othniel and then Othniel had to cooperate with what the Lord was saying He, he had to cooperate with what the Holy Spirit was prompting him to do and to go out against this king now this king if you study out his name what, his, what this king's name is that he was doubly wicked. That means that this guy was, was, not only was he wicked, but he was the most wicked person that you could think of. And so, yes, Othniel was endowed with power by the Holy Spirit, but it wasn't effective necessarily until he engaged in the fight. Now, I, I, I'm here to tell you as a Christian, if you're here and you're a believer, you have the power of the Holy Spirit within you. You have to apply that in prayer. You have to apply that in moving out as the Holy Spirit leads you in order for you to be effective. <laughs> no one can accomplish anything spiritually significant without the Holy Spirit's enablement. The second thing that I want us to understand is that as we're empowered by God he can use anyone empowered by God he can use anyone now let me contrast this Othniel came from a military, a warrior bloodline. How many of you remember Caleb? And and Caleb was Joshua and Caleb. They were they, they were the two spies that came back with a report, and it was a good report. They said, "Yeah, the land is good, and God has given it to us. Let us go take it right now." That was the spirit of Caleb, and so Othniel is a descendant from Caleb. So we understand that, of course, Othniel was chosen by God to go against the enemy and to and to bring forward a great victory. It it kind of, it's like the most likely, like, yeah, he's got everything that it takes to do it, so yes, why not him? And I think as believers, there's times where we look at other people and we say, of course God is using him. They're, they're, they're generationally blessed, or, or God has just graced them so significantly, or they're great speakers, or they're so gifted and talented. It's like, yeah, of course God is using them. I want to contrast that this morning and, and, and encourage you that empowered by God, he can use anyone. We'll look at the story of Ehud. And continuing in Judges, picking up in uh, uh, Judges 12 or chapter 3 verse 12, once again the Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight. And the Lord gave King Eglon of Moab control over Israel because of their evil. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord again raised up a rescuer to save them. Now I I want to, I'm just for the sake of time, I want to paraphrase this. So Ehud it says that Ehud is a left-handed man. What basically what they're saying is that Ehud didn't have a right hand at all. Maybe he didn't even have a right arm. And so God moves on Ehud, and Ehud is the judge at this time, and he's going to pay tribute to this king of Moab. Now he's taking this money. He's got people with him. They, they've collected this money. They're going to the king of Moab to pay their uh, uh, their taxes to this king. And as they go, they 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 give those taxes. And and it says that they're traveling back. Here and uh, down, down further in the scripture, it says, uh, it, "It says, but when Ehud reached the stone idols near Gilgal, he turned back. Now, picture this: Ehud goes on this on this trip, gives money to the king. Now it says that Ehud put a dagger in his right thigh, so he 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 went equipped to. To slaughter this king and so he goes to the king and and in that moment we don't understand we don't have knowledge we don't have insight here but in that moment he he got nervous or he got cowardice and he didn't do what he set out to do and so he leaves the money with the king and he starts heading back as he's heading back it says that he saw the stones at Gilgal Now, this is important for us to understand that those stones were really a a sacred worship offering to the Baals. And we have to conclude that as Ehud was traveling back after he dropped off that money, after he didn't do what he felt intended to do in killing this enemy king, that he was inspired in that moment by a righteous indignation. He realized that the people of Israel have fallen so far away from Yahweh, from the one true God. And that now that his, his city is, is littered with this pagan idolatry. And in that moment, he became inspired. How many of us in this world, as we go through our lives... We hear things, and we see things, and we see the wickedness that's all around. And there's this righteous indignation in us that we just feel like, my gosh, someone's got to do something. And I'll tell you this morning, if that's not you, almost daily, I would question whether you're really sensitive to the Holy Spirit. Ehud in this moment was so disgusted by how far the people of God had fallen away from him that when he saw that a place that had been re- th- this place had been replaced by all these monuments in Joshua and Exodus of the deliverance of God, you hear it that after God g- gave a great deliverance that they would build an altar to the Lord so that people would remember. Every time they walked by, they would remember God did something significant there. Every time they walked by this, God did something significant there, and it would inspire them, and it would challenge them, and it would, it would strengthen their faith. Now, all of those memorials are replaced by idolatry. And in that moment, Ehud says, "This enough is enough. Enough is enough. And, and the Bible says that he goes back and he slaughters the king. This was a man that was disabled. This was a man that, that most people probably thought that there, there's no real danger. I think that even the king of Moab had, was, was, not, was not scared of Ehud. What is Ehud going to do? He's got one hand. And it was in that that God rose up Ehud as a judge. God could use anyone to fulfill his purpose. I believe that Ehud had this inner struggle in his mind. As he was walking, think about this, as he was walking, And as he had the strategy to assassinate this Moab Moab king, I believe that that there was tension in his life. There was tension in his heart and his mind. My God, God, I, I don't know if I could do this. I don't know if I have the strength. I don't know if I have the courage. I believe that even his flesh was kind of coming against him and saying, man, is it really that bad? Life is kind of okay. I mean, it's not really all that bad. And uh, I I love what John Owen, a a theologian, he says it this way about the traitor in our minds, the, the enemy that whispers these lies in our minds. Listen to this. However strong a castle may be, if a treacherous party resides inside, ready to betray at the first opportunity possible, the castle cannot be kept safe from the enemy traitors occupy our own hearts ready to side with every temptation and to surrender to them all and i believe that this that, that that this is a lot of us is that there's this tension in our in our lives and i'm not saying that there's anything wrong with you paul talks about that tension in his life the thing that i wish i would do i cannot do and and i believe that ehud had the same kind of tension in his life he cowered it out he ranked out the first time but he was inspired by the sin that that he saw that had overtaken his people, and he was inspired by the power of the Holy Spirit to go back and to rid the people of this king, of this foul king. This should inspire us that God could use anyone. The last point is this, is that empowered by God, he can use anything. The last three characters that I want us to look at briefly is a farmer and his tools, a mother of Israel and a housewife. Shamgar the farmer. Judges three thirty one. The Bible says after Ehud Shamgar son of Anath rescued Israel, he once killed six hundred Philistines with an ox goad. Shamgar, if you understand this, and that's it's one scripture. But if you understand the context with Shamgar, Shamgar was a common farmer shamgar wasn't even a what wasn't even of israel shamgar was a proselyte what that means is he was probably a canaanite that had converted into the faith and so here's this man that uh the least likely uh doesn't necessarily have the promise of god on his life either he's not of the people of israel yet in this moment god raises him up to be a great judge now how does he do it does he do it with 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 an army maybe even with a militia maybe a smaller army no, he does it with an ox goad. Let's put that picture up real quick. You guys with me? Here we go. All right. This is not a military weapon. This is for oxes and cattle. So he takes this thing and he slaughters 600 Philistines. God can use anyone and God can use Anything. No matter how weak the, the weapon is, if God directs and strengthens the arm, an ox goad, when God pleases, will do more than Goliath's sword. So Shamgar sees an opportunity to kill 600 Philistines. The next, the, the next character is Deborah. Deborah the mother. And I'm going to read here. And Judges four one two says, after Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king, the commander of his army, and was Sisera who lived in that city that you see there. Judges four, fourteen to 15, it says this, Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. Listen to that. The Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, the Lord threw Sisera and all of his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leaped down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Judges four twenty three. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the Canaanite king, and from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. Now, Deborah, I, I want you to understand, Deborah was a prophet. And in this moment, God, God moved on Deborah to tell Barak to go and fight this battle, that God would give him the victory. Now, Barak was a coward, Barak was afraid. He said, I, I'm not going unless you go. And Deborah says, okay, I'm going to go with you. But now you're not going to earn the glory of this battle. And it's, it's interesting that God would use Deborah. And I'm not minimizing a common mother, but truly Deborah was a prophet But when she says, I, Deborah, arose, she's not saying that I, Deborah, this queen with great power and great influence arose. She's taking a low place and say, I, Deborah, arose, a mother of Israel, a common person in which empowered by God, inspired by God, could do great things. I'm here to tell you that God can use anyone and God can use anything to fulfill his purpose. The last character is JL. And this is in closing. J.L. was a housewife. And I'm I'm not minimizing that. I'm I'm just letting you know she was a housewife. She, there was nothing, she was not from some great lineage. She had no great influence. She had uh, none of these, none of these things necessarily going for her other than she feared the Lord. She feared Yahweh. And the Bible says in Judges 4, 21 to 22, but Jael, the wife of Heber, Heber was another coward, another man that had become complacent and had compromised, that had been intertwined with the Canaanites. So Jael took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. We could put that picture up. Then she went softly to him and drove the, the peg Into his temple until it went down. Until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent and there lay Sisera dead with a tent peg in his temple. Let's leave that picture up. Here's Jael. And this is the context of the story in, 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 in the most uh, succinct way that I could say it. Heber was a man of influence, and he didn't want to get involved in the conflict of Barak and Deborah. And so he left. He said, I'm not going to do this because if this thing doesn't work out right, I don't want to suffer the consequences. So he compromised. He said, I, I, I can't be a part of this. Jael stayed behind in the tent. And so here's Barak. Barak knows that he's got the power of God on him and he's pursuing the enemy. And Sisera says that Sisera goes fleeing and he's running. And as he's running from, from, from Barak, here's Jael. Jael recognizes Sisera and, and offers Sisera a place of refuge. Now, I believe in this moment that J.L. probably didn't understand all of this. She didn't have this great strategy. All played out at all. She took an opportunity. She saw and she seized an opportunity to fulfill the will of God. So J.L. tells Cicero, why don't you come in here? Come into, come into my tent, and you could take refuge here. The Bible says that Jael came and brought him not, not water, but brought him milk and yogurt and gave him food, gave him a blanket, got him real nice and comfortable. I believe that Jael was conflicted in this moment. She knew that this was an evil man. She knew that this was a man that was opposed to God. And I believe in this moment, she, she didn't have it all figured out, but she knew that there was this opportunity to fulfill the call of God, to fulfill the the will of God. And so it says that she went and she took a tent peg and a common hammer. It's all she had. Like Shamgar, all he had was an ox goat. He didn't have a militia. He didn't have an army. He didn't have these great resources. Jael, all she had was a tent peg and a hammer. And it says that as Sisera laid and got comfortable as he set aside all of his kind of fears and and for a moment has some comfort and thought like, okay, everything's going to work out. Here's JL, inspired, empowered by the presence of God, going against the fear that she had, using all she had, the only thing that she had in her hand was a tent peg and a hammer. And the Bible says that she struck Sisera with a tent peg And a hammer. And if you understand what happens after this, after this great victory, Jael takes no pleasure, Jael takes no glory of defeating this king. In fact, she goes to Barak and says, Barak, here he is. Do what you want. What's significant about this story is that after this fight, after this victory, the military oppression of the Canaanites over Israel had been broken. Now, there were more judges that came after, but the military oppression over Israel had been broken because God had inspired people by the power of the Holy Spirit. He he had inspired not only the great warriors and champions like Othniel, but those that were least likely like Ehud. Those that were more common like Shamgar. Those that took a lowly place like Deborah and Jael. And God empowered them with the Holy Spirit. God moved upon them. God used what they had in their hands as they willfully set it before him and fulfilled the will of God for the people of Israel. I believe this morning that we could be encouraged by this. Charles Persian said it like this. He said, where he compares Sisera to sin, he, he asserted that we should not be content to see our sins simply fleeing from us, running from us. But we should be ready to pursue them and then drive them into the ground dead with a nail the same way J.L. did. The only one who could help us do that is Jesus. We should be constantly ready to run to him, constantly ready to confess our sins and then bask in the victory of the cross. Colossians 2.13-15 says it this way. You were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away then god made you alive with christ for he gave all our sins he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities he shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross i want you to bow your head and close your eyes with me this morning